0: Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray, and with me by Squadcast is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spees, and we have a guest tonight on a timely topic, something that's been showing up in the news recently, and we've been getting some inquiries about. So we're really happy to be able to address this uh, subject. Bob, do you want to talk a little bit about who we have tonight?
1: Yeah, we have never done a program on wildlife diseases, and so uh, really pleased to have. Brian Richards with the U.S. Geological Survey. He's the Emerging Diseases Coordinator at the USGS National Wildlife Health Center in Madison, Wisconsin. And we're gonna be talking about wildlife diseases, in particular bird flu. Brian's right at the nerve center of kind of what's going on in the U.S. government with tracking these diseases, and particularly bird flu, which is an emerging disease. So, Brian, uh, welcome to our program.
2: Well, thanks very much for uh, inviting me to participate. Looking forward to it.
1: We usually ask our guests to talk a little bit about how they got into uh, what they are studying and their field of research and their early years and what kind of piqued their interest in becoming a scientist and an ecologist. And uh, so maybe you could kind of fill us in a little bit.
2: All right. Be glad to. Um, Background, I grew up on a dairy farm in uh, west central Wisconsin. And so part of that job description was spending time in the woods and kicking over rocks and spending time seeing what was in streams and and mud holes and things like that. And spurred pretty much a a lifelong interest in, in nature. I guess I was uh, fortunate to be able to pursue that Um, in in college. I uh, started out at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison in the wildlife ecology program, a place where a guy uh, by the name of Aldo Leopold started that program back in uh, the 1930s, you know, the father of wildlife ecology management. So started there, you know, did some some time in grad school at Southern Illinois, and then uh, um, beyond that, I, I worked for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department for a little over 11 years on uh, all facets facets of, uh, of big game management in the state of Texas. And then for the past uh, close to 20 years, I've uh, um, been back with the U.S. Geological Survey at our, at our National Wildlife Health Center. And originally, you know, came to this role with a forte in chronic wasting disease, you know, cervids. Uh, but have diversified that portfolio pretty uh, pretty greatly over the years. Uh, so you may have caught there that you know I started out you know studying wildlife. I've been well I've studied wildlife my entire life, and then as time went on, you know, it was much through reading and being able to share and learn from the true experts in the field of wildlife disease. I've become fairly well versed in being able to talk about the great science that, that so many other people have spent their careers doing as well. So that's a little bit of the background anyway.
0: We had asked you to, to talk with us about uh, a viral disease that is getting a lot of attention. Uh, and that is, of course, the, the HPAI, highly pathogenic avian influenza, uh, popularly known as bird flu, which has recently appeared in california Uh, by recently i mean in uh, late july and early august we're conducting this interview on the 8th of august and uh, there are only a maybe a handful of documented cases in california so far but it started on the east coast and it's become quite a major concern and there's a lot of concern over what's going to happen to the birds this coming fall and winter i think so We'd like to hear a little bit about what that disease is, how it's different from other forms of avian influenza that have repeatedly struck the bird populations.
2: You're correct in that this particular outbreak or epizootic in North America, um, our first detections were along the East Coast and they were right, uh, the first detection known was in Newfoundland and and Labrador on December 20th of 2021 in a multi-species exhibition facility, avian, you know, bird exhibition facility. Um, And then Mm. shortly thereafter, it turns out that um, uh, four um, uh, black-backed gulls had been presented to licensed wildlife rehabilitators in Newfoundland back in early November. And these birds were not tested right away, but it turns out that they were the first known cases of this particular HPAI, or highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak in North America. But I think the story we'd have to start prior to that, because it didn't just show up, here in North America, it's Genesis was not here. We can back up a little bit and look at what's been going on the last couple of years in Europe and in Asia, where cases of high path AI have been building through time. And we'd seen some different sorts of impacts in Europe the last couple of years. We were starting to see more involvement of waterfowl, water birds. We were starting to see more substantial mortality, larger numbers of wild birds succumbing to HPAI the last couple years, and something else that was pretty novel. Typically, and we'll go into this in a little more detail, um, typically, In the summertime, when migratory birds go north, carrying high-path AI, those viruses get kind of swamped out by other low-pathogenic viruses. And in the fall, the epizootic doesn't come back. So an interesting thing happened last year, you know, this time of year in Europe, when the migratory birds started coming back in the fall, coming back south in the fall, and they brought a lot of this same HPA virus with them. So that's kind of the, a little bit of the background, but let's go back a little bit further. I think we have an opportunity. We should talk about avian influenza viruses. And these viruses yeah. evolved in concert with waterfowl and water birds. So there's tremendous, tremendous variety of avian influenza viruses and waterfowl, we think of your dabbling ducks, you know, the classic one is mallard ducks. Um, They're built to coexist with low path viruses. So they carry them, there's great diversity, and these viruses have essentially no impact either on the individual or at the population level. They evolve together and uh, no harm done, right? periodically historically some of these viruses could spill over from waterfowl into poultry facilities and inside of these poultry facilities a couple of the subtypes what we refer to as h5 and h7 can if these viruses these low path viruses spill over into a poultry production facility There they can mutate into what we refer to as a highly pathogenic form. And I should note that the term HP, highly pathogenic avian influenza, refers explicitly to a virus's capability to cause sickness and death in poultry, not in humans, not in water birds. So these viruses have evolved over time. Periodically, they'd spill over into commercial poultry facilities. And the H5s or the H7s could mutate into a highly pathogenic form where they'd cause great mortality, sickness and mortality in that particular poultry facility. And that's the last we'd hear about that virus. Okay. Hmm. One and done. In 1996, a particular lineage of viruses, it began with an H5N1, and it's a, it's a precursor to the H5N1 we have right now, um, evolved in Southeast Asia. We refer to that as a, as a Guangdong lineage of virus. That virus was quite different. It was not a one and done. It persisted through time and through space. And the longer it persisted inside of poultry um, facilities, primarily in Southeast Asia, it had opportunity to spill back into into water birds. And the first time the note first notable time it did was in 2005 in a place called Qinghai Lake in China, where the virus that had persisted since 1996 first, first spilled over back into water birds and caused Substantial mortality. I think it was something on the order of 6,000 birds, including 3,000 bar-headed geese, all died of high-path AI at the same lake at the same time. So now we we'd kind of completed that cycle, where a low-path virus had converted into in a poultry facility or poultry facilities into a highly pathogenic form. It persisted in those in that poultry environment then ultimately it spilled back into water birds and resulted in substantial mortality. That's been going on now since 2005. And the kicker is that these highly pathogenic viruses, especially this one, is still extremely well adapted to being moved around by some of our dabbling ducks and other waterfowl. So things like mallard ducks, our our quintessential quintessential carrier of avian influenza viruses, does a great job at transporting virus, at shedding this highly pathogenic virus out into the environment, but rarely has any sort of illness or mortality associated with high path AI. Unlike some of the other uh, uh, birds that, that we can talk about. So historically, kind of a one and done. 1996 changed into a more persistent form. 2005 was the first time it spilled over into wild birds. And that virus really persisted through space and through time, um, evolving as it goes. The first time we saw it here in North America was in 2014 and 2015 when the virus came in as an h5n2 and then an h5n8 along the west coast and came in likely um, uh, across um, from from alaska and down the west coast and california was actually one of the first states where it was detected in the winter of 2014 and 2015. that outbreak then uh, moved through multiple states Um, It it resulted in the loss of some 50 million commercial poultry in in 2015, a lot of them in the Midwestern states. There was some wild bird involvement, substantially less. But when that virus, uh, the wild birds took it north on their migration in, uh, in 2015, we really didn't see that virus again. So the low-path viruses that our North American waterfowl were carrying kind of swamped out the high-path AI that had been introduced along the Pacific Flyway. And we didn't see it again. So now coming full circle again, that same group or lineage of viruses has come to visit us again. This time, the first time we saw it was in Newfoundland and Labrador in the end of 2021. Um, it, is, it, is, it came down the East Coast. It moved um, um, coast to coast, um, from the Atlantic Flyway to the Mississippi Flyway to the Central Flyway, now into the Pacific Flyway. And you're correct, the state of California, um, fairly recent. Uh, but the, the results of this outbreak and the impacts have been substantially different. So before I go any farther, did that spur any questions <laughs> or how
0: many? Lots of them, of course. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah.
1: The, uh, understanding of, uh, you know, kind of non-disease biologists, uh, is that when these, these viral diseases get into to populations, it's really bad at first because there's a high pathogenicity, but over time that actually defeats the, the virus in a way because, the it, it has less of a chance of being passed on. So the evolution tends to favor less pathogenic effects. Or is this general uh, HPAI fit into that or, or is it some sort of modification of that model that we're dealing with?
2: Sure, great question. And I think we have to distinguish between the traditional carriers, um, your, your dabbling ducks where this current lineage seems to be incredibly well adapted to life in, in these in ducks. But the ducks are shedding virus out into the environment and periodically they succumb to illness themselves. And that's when we get this spillover into the alternate hosts. And we can think of commercial poultry facilities as alternative, you know, alternate spillover hosts We can think of backyard poultry flocks as alternative hosts, and we can think of all of the other wildlife. And so we've got other water birds who are likely exposed to the virus um, in that water environment. Then many of them are predators or scavengers. This time around, we've seen tremendous impacts in raptors, things like bald eagles, lots of different species of hawks and owls. We've also seen tremendous impacts in scavenging birds. So things like black vultures um, you know, have, have had tremendous you know, mortality. And so each, in each one of these cases, whether it's the commercial poultry, or whether it's the backyard flock, or the other associated birds, each one is what we would refer to literally as a dead end host where the, the, they're introduced, the virus is introduced to them or they're exposed to the virus. They're not adapted at all to the virus. And so we see very rapid uh, mortality in some of these alternate hosts. And, but they're not able to keep the virus moving. After all, the virus doesn't need them to keep moving. It needs, it needs migratory waterfowl in order to persist through time, in order to change and persist through time should also mention scavenging mammals. Um, even though it's an avian influenza virus, I mean, we're, we're susceptible, humans other mammals are susceptible to some avian viruses. This time around, and in 2014, 2015, we didn't see any mammal, mammalian involvement. This time, it's been a little bit different. There's now eight species of scavenging mammals in North America, um, including you know, red fox, striped skunk, Uh, Virginia opossum, raccoons, bobcat, mink, coyote, and fisher, um, where we've had cases, probably close to 100 cases now, of individual mammals uh, succumbing to high-path AI. And again, each one of these likely consumed the carcass of a bird that died of high-path AI. So again, these literally dead-end hosts and so far knock on wood we haven't seen any evidence of adaptation of the viruses to mammals because we think about what happens with a pandemic virus and we've had you know four at least you know um influenza viruses in humans and we have to see a few things there we have to see a virus mutate into a form uh, where human receptors can pick it up turn into disease and then we have to see um you know, human to human, so human shedding virus and rapid movement of virus through humans. To date, this particular lineage of virus has been exceptionally well behaved with regard to human involvement. In the last year, uh, there have been two cases that have been reported to the World Health Organization in Humans. And one of them was in Great Britain uh, with a gentleman who literally lived in close association. Some of his pet ducks literally lived inside of his domicile with him. So some of his ex-outside ducks got high path AI. They gave it to some of the ones that lived literally, literally in the house of this gentleman. So his exposure risk was much, much higher because these ducks were shedding live virus right in you know up close and personal the second individual was in north america it was in the state of colorado and it actually was um was an inmate um in the colorado penal system who had volunteered for you know work experience pre-release work experience and he was working at a depopulation of a commercial poultry facility that had you know a million positive birds and so he was in there wearing appropriate PPE, but likely not well versed in keeping hands away from face and things like that. So he was in an environment that was ridden, you know, riddled with virus and he was exposed. Now, it's important to note that he never developed any sort of an illness. And when he was tested, It may have actually been virus that was just inside his nose that was picked up by the swab as opposed to an actual infection. So pretty interesting. And and we always get the question, well, is this a risk to humans? Well, we can't say it's not. And the Centers for Disease Control is the best place for guidance on that. Um, the CDC has recommendations for people who are handling birds, including wild birds, in all sorts of instances. And I learned a long time ago not to play human doctor. Leave it to human health experts, you know, to to be you know much better versed and better authorities than than I could ever be. So when people are concerned about you know potential human impacts from high path avian influenza, go to CDC. They've got a tremendous set of resources there.
0: If you just joined us, we're speaking tonight on the Ecology Hour with Brian Richards. He is the Emerging Disease Coordinator with the USGS National Wildlife Health Center, uh, speaking to us from Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, this interview is con- being conducted on Monday, August 8. And we're talking about the ongoing uh, epidemic of highly pathogenic avian influenza Uh, better known as bird flu. So uh, one question that that I had is, you mentioned that this came apparently from the North Atlantic, uh, where it's been affecting birds for some time before it showed up in North America. Is this the same strain that's currently uh, causing very high mortality in a lot of North Atlantic seabirds? There's a great deal of concern in bird biologists about this.
2: It, It sure is. And I should give you a couple of of simple metrics to show, you know, I mentioned it's pretty different than what we saw in 2015. And a few metrics might put that into perspective. Um, so, So in 2014, we had 211 commercial flocks with 50 million birds affected. This time around, 189 flocks with about 40 million birds, you know, affected commercial. So pretty similar there. A little different when we talk about backyard flocks, and that's you know, when somebody with anywhere from half a dozen to 100 or so you know, chickens or mixed flocks in their backyard. In the outbreak in 2015, 21 backyard flocks were reported. This time around, we're a little over 200, 211. So a tenfold increase. So we think you know, commercial poultry farms can implement pretty substantial biosecurity physical measures and human measures to keep virus out of those facilities. A backyard flock owner really doesn't have as many options for biosecurity. So when we see a tenfold increase in the number of backyard flocks infected, likely merely suggests there's a lot more virus out there in the environment. So now take a look at what's going on with with wild birds. In the 2014-2015 outbreak we had a grand total of 99 wild birds representing 18 different species confirmed. This time around is a little bit different and these are combined figures from Canada and the United States. We've got a little over 2,500 wild birds confirmed And we're one shy of 100. As of this morning, um, when I added things up, we have 99 unique wild bird species that have been confirmed as carrying high path AI. So that's the species, um, the host range. Now a little bit about the geographic range. In 2015, we had 35 counties in 16 states where wild birds were confirmed. This time around, we're at 486 counties in 44 states. So a substantially larger geographic footprint. And again, all this traces back to our North American dabbling ducks, mostly, and some some geese as well. Snow geese can move this around, but they tend to suffer higher mortality. But some of our dabbling ducks, uh, this virus is incredibly well adapted so a lot of them are carrying it around, they're shedding a lot of it out into the environment, and we have all of these these massive um, numbers and geographic scope and host expanded host range of these dead-end spillover hosts. So quite a bit different. Now more recently, so, so I think I mentioned, you know, we, it, we, we picked it up in the far northeast, it came down the Atlantic Flyway all the way to Florida, then the next place in, in February um, started picking it up in, this, in, the, in the Mississippi Flyway, first in southwestern Indiana in a commercial um, turkey facility, and then in wild birds in that vicinity. Over the course of the next month or so, detections started flowing right up the Missouri basin towards the north and west. And since that time, we've seen it drifting both to the west and moving north with uh, the spring migration of of waterfowl moving north. Some of the current things that we're observing, and one of them is the eastern seabirds, and I think that's really um, interesting and um, kind of one of the more devastating effects that we've seen so far. So some of the trends we're seeing right now is more of the year birds involved. So we think about migratory waterfowl kind of heading north and or dispersing out to their nesting grounds. And so that gives the viruses, our North American low path viruses, an opportunity to, to merge and to overwhelm the high path AI. But now, this time around, we've seen a lot of local bird involvement, including hatch year or young of the year. And so when you've got a population with hatch year or the juvenile ducklings and goslings involved, these represent a new uh, set of susceptible naive hosts out in the environment. And so if there's still viable virus in the environment, it's a brand new host population to potentially infect. So we're seeing that within local situations all across the country right now. I mentioned the scavenging mammals. That's new and different, and again, likely represents a lot of virus out there. We're seeing pretty substantial and broad-scale impacts and mortality in the state of Alaska, and why not? That's where a lot of our migratory waterfowl head north, and that's their northern terminus and breeding grounds. So they took the virus north. It's persisting, or apparently persisting, on the breeding grounds. And the big question is, what happens when they come back south? Another thing we're seeing is the colony nesting species and that's the seabirds you mentioned and mm-hmm. some some pretty dramatic impacts in things like northern gannets and uh, northern gannets are you know, are uh, also on you know like so Scotland on the on the on the, on the west coast of of um, the united kingdom and europe we also have populations on iceland and then coming back down into north america pretty dramatic impacts being measured in all three of those locations so and these are colony nesting birds so we think if, if we think back about well what could high path AI really impact certainly poultry right but from a wild bird aspect what could where would the biggest impacts and we got to think about well what about rare and endangered species that's one and the other is birds that nest in tremendously high densities because if we drop a little bit of virus into an incredibly high density system transmission dynamics just go boom yeah we can mm-hmm. see tremendous transmission and so this is being documented in things like northern gannets um, in common terns, in caspian terns. Um, one instance we're aware of: um, Caspian terns globally seem to be doing fairly well. In North America as a whole, they're doing fairly well. Mm-hmm. But these are have incredible. These birds have incredible fidelity to particular nesting sites. These high-density colony-type nesting sites. Some of these birds are tremendously long-lived, so some of them will get to be 20, 30 years old and have relatively low, you know, single clutch per year, relatively low uh, reproductive output. So if you have a system where you've got this tremendously high fidelity and you lose that population or the most of that population and you lose an entire um, nest crop or young of the year hatch crop, that population could take years or decades to come back. One example, Couple islands in the in Lake Michigan, um, a couple of them on the Wisconsin side, one on the Michigan side. Where in late May and early June, on these island systems, there would be literally hundreds, maybe 200, maybe 300 active Caspian tern nests documented, and mortality just beginning. Researchers would come back. Researchers or managers would come back to these islands. A couple weeks later and in two instances we went on one from i think it was 291 active nests to one Mm. and the other one was about 200 active nests to one Mm -hmm. so losing an entire hatch crop for that year puts the viability of that localized population into jeopardy likely for decades so tremendous tremendous impacts among those colony nesting birds
0: so is it killing just the young of the year did it kill the adults as well kills
2: the adults as well so that's where it's really that double whammy so you're taking out the adult birds most of the adult birds a few will survive and you're losing that nest crop so now who's yeah hopefully you'll have a few birds that'll come back next year and kind of start over but the Mm -hmm. strategy of colony nesting is in great numbers. Success comes in great numbers. Right. Predator avoidance yeah. comes in great numbers. So exactly. if you're down to just a few, is your lifestyle and your life strategy, will it be effective going into the future? But the one thing we can do is, is you know if we're concerned about these birds, is try to do what we can to make the conditions as best we possibly can for their recovery. That goes across the board. Diseases like high path AI, diseases of wildlife in general, our toolkit is quite limited with regard to intervening or altering outcomes. But the one thing we can do across the board is try to alter conditions such that remnant populations can prosper better into the future, recovery potential.
1: Right, give them a chance to evolve and adapt, yeah. Are we far enough into this uh, latest uh, uh, outbreak of HPAI to know if migration has a chance to, st- to stem the, uh, the spread of this uh, like it has in past instances? Or, or...
2: I think this fall will be quite interesting. That's the million dollar question right now. Based on yeah. what happened in Europe last year, where migratory birds did bring the same virus back in the fall, and it's the same virus we have over here. Well, it's evolved a little bit over, over space and time, but essentially it's the same virus. So their experience in Europe last year, where it came back with the fall migration, plus with the, the, the geographic scope, the magnitude of the event we're experiencing here, the fact that it's persisting locally in populations in the lower 48, and seems to be doing pretty well in Alaska and Northern Canada right now, suggests that this virus could easily come back in fall migration. Obviously Mm -hmm. the crystal ball doesn't work well enough to say definitively, yes, it will, but the cards look to be stacked in that fashion right now. And so Mm -hmm. our fall surveillance will be very informative with regard to what happens with this virus.
0: So this is a big concern for, for those of us in California, looking at the waterfowl returning, because two things that you just mentioned are kind of coming together one is the migratory birds are just within another couple of months there will be about two million migratory geese and probably twice that many migratory ducks coming into the central valley of california for the winter the the winter in the sacramento and san joaquin valleys and the other is the habitat uh, which we have largely eliminated uh, 90 plus percent of their former habitat that they would overwinter in the central valley which was uh, prehistorically just one great big marsh now uh, all those millions of birds are forced basically to congregate in the national wildlife refuges uh, and so they're in close proximity and and you have tens of thousands of geese in a single flock jammed into a, a single pond and it sounds like a recipe for disaster
2: Risk would certainly be accentuated in that situation if virus comes back. Um, the wintering populations and on the migration pathway, where we see great numbers at staging areas, those will be yeah. high-risk situations. And the risk will also continue for backyard flock owners and for the commercial poultry industry. I should mention while we're at it, you know, our United States Department of Agriculture and, and you know state Department of Agricultures do a tremendous job at getting information out there to the industry and backyard flock owners. And USDA has a program called Defend the Flock. And so if a person Googles USDA and Defend the Flock, you'll get incredibly useful information about you know, common sense things that backyard flock owners can do to help assure that their birds you know uh, don't inadvertently become infected, because if they do, it's gonna be it's gonna be a hundred percent mortality, you know, in those flocks. Yeah. So so if we see it come back strad. yeah, things things that people need to look out for. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I have a the other the other, just before we get to it, Bob, I just wanted to mention that the other thing that uh it couldn't possibly have come at a worse time because um we don't have a lot of water available in California. And so the the areas uh, a lot of the refuges, a lot of the places where the birds would stop over on migration, uh, have no water, and so that's going to tend to concentrate the the waterfowl even more than they ordinarily would into smaller and smaller patches where there's yeah and you've got habitat. you've
2: got virus active yeah you know, in multiple counties right now. I think as of this morning, uh, Calusa County, Sonoma County. Solano County, Sacramento County, Siskiyou, Um, wild bird confirmations in each one of those locations. So you've got virus moving through those systems right now. You also have the very, yeah, yeah, you you also have the very beginning of of migratory movements and some of the local Mm -hmm. birds that are done nesting are starting to move around. So you've got those new populations of susceptible naive hosts and you've got virus in the environment. So you put those together and it, and it, and it creates a situation where transmission could easily continue to occur.
1: Yeah. yeah well, Sonoma County is just South of us here. So yeah, a few cases showing up there. Yeah, I so, had a question. I had a question about migratory, uh, about seabird colonies in Alaska. There's, I worked up there for a number of years and there are huge colonies of all kinds of things, notably MERS and uh, various kinds of gulls and so forth. Uh, our, is this uh, latest uh, uh, spread of virus uh, impacted those populations yet, or is it mainly in birds that are in freshwater environments up there?
2: Knock on wood we have not had the reports of the colony nesting seabirds in alaska that we have seen along the east coast and the far northeast yeah. coast and i'm knocking yeah. on wood vigorously while I, while i'm doing while i'm saying that um, but yeah. to date i have not heard reports of those types of impacts now interesting. it's interesting along along the East Coast, we've now have also seen positive both uh, harbor seals and gray seals. And so we've not seen that on the Pacific coast to date, but again, there are very great concerns, especially among you know native populations who are subsistence users um, you know of these resources. So mm-hmm. the potential is there. And like I said, you know, knock on wood, we haven't seen that sort of spillover or heavy involvement of of colonial seabirds on the Alaska coast yet.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, because oh, I true. not long ago was just uh, reading about mortality in the breeding seabird colonies in the North Atlantic, and it's just devastating. The you mentioned the northern gannets, and I've personally seen the biggest. Gannet breeding colony in the Atlantic, Bass Rock, just off the coast of Scotland. And it's a spectac- spectacular sight. Uh, and something like 100,000 pears nest there. And uh, it's apparently Reports, just um, yeah. running rampant there.
2: Reports from Bass Rock have been at least 60% mortality is what I think <sighs> I've seen in the, in the media on losses That's... of birds. Yeah, the largest colony in the world suffering more than half of their birds are gone. And likely lost a pretty large chunk of this year's nesting uh, opportunity as well. And the hatchier birds probably just aren't there.
0: That's got to be just absolutely ghastly to, to see that. Yep. I mean, we're talking an enormous number of birds in a very small spot. Yeah.
2: Similarly, oh. in Iceland, um, uh, one of these colonies has you know, a webcam on it and you can look at the difference in um, density of birds and nesting success on old videos from 2021 as opposed to what's going on this year and the density of live birds is markedly lower and if you'd watch those videos over time or that webcam over time you would see a tremendous amount of mortality you know among those gannets
1: we're interviewing brian richards who's uh, from the U.S. GS National Wildlife Health Center in Madison, Wisconsin. And we're talking about wildlife diseases, in particular bird flu. And so what could local people here do if they uh, find a dead bird? Should they send it somewhere for testing? Uh, is there some symptoms that they could be watching for if they've got a backyard flock of chickens or uh, what kind of on-the-ground sure, sure. advice can we... Can we proper?
2: Well, anybody that's involved in the agricultural aspect, either, you know, the backyard fowl or the, you know, commercial, you know, your best resources out there is California Department of Agriculture, okay? They're going to want you to report unusual mortality, and with poultry, you're probably not going to see a lot of sick, you're going to see a lot of dead, okay? and mm-hmm. so it's pretty rapid disease in pretty dramatic fashion um, where you're going to start losing your backyard birds so to me if you're a backyard flock owner and i'm a backyard flock owner and i'm surprised we haven't heard some of my girls out here squawking over mm-hmm. the course of the last hour uh, there's a lot of precautions one can take and certainly keeping aware keeping track of the news what's going on where has hpai been detected and fattening down the hatches, you know, according to you know what you're seeing going on. So that's the best guidance I can give, give to the backyard flock owners, is keep your eyes and your ears open. Look to USDA and California Department of Agriculture for common sense guidance, how you can deal with risk. Now, with regard to if people see sick or dead birds, wild birds, I'm pretty sure California Department of Fish and Wildlife has either a hotline or a web presence where you can report sick or dead wildlife. That's your best that's your best course of action. Right. Okay. Now yeah, you start
0: they have an online form that you can yeah. fill out and all. There you go. I'll put and I work with these folks regularly
2: they're tremendously responsive. Now, if we get mm-hmm. in the thick of it, kind of like we were this spring when it was, you know, hundreds and thousands of birds, then, you know, once you've documented, you know, a dozen locations in a county, it's probably less important to document mm-hmm. each individual bird because it's, you know, not unlimited resources and laboratory capacity in order to test. But documenting where it is and changes in prevalence and where and when it is through time, is all important, and that's what that reporting sick and dead birds, you know, to California Fish and Wildlife, and reporting increases in mortality in your backyard flocks or commercial poultries to California Department of Agriculture. It's your best bet. These are wonderful people. I work with them pretty much every day, every week. <laughs> okay. They're there to help. Well, yeah. Tim,
1: it looks like looks like we're uh, closing in on the end of the interview here.
0: Uh, well i think that's... that maybe what we might do is spend a little more time on on the avian flu and then i can edit if i need to to, uh, to okay. devote the okay. whole hour to it um okay yeah you wanted to talk I, about I what still...
2: backyard or backyard feeders could do right
0: exactly okay. i wanted to ask the kind of the more general question first is you know we've talked about this disease as primarily affecting waterfowl and secondarily. Uh, affecting the predators and scavengers that are either preying on the waterfowl or eating the dead ones that have already succumbed to the virus. Uh, what about songbirds and, and other kinds of birds that are not directly interacting with the waterfowl? Uh, is this a concern to them, too?
2: That's a great question. And I think you hit, you hit right on the response right there. That if we look to the literature, the scientific literature... There's almost no involvement of, you know, songbirds, kind of your backyard passerines, in the ecology of avian influenza viruses. They're not associated tightly with the environment. Um, the virus is primarily in, in waterfowl. It's a fecal-oral cycle, shed out the back end and, and taken up in the front end. So mm-hmm. for your typical backyard songbirds, they're just not involved in that cycle. There's a couple exceptions, though. So, First, if we think about um, birds that are in tight association with, say, a commercial poultry facility or some environment where there's a lot of virus there, then we can see that sort of a spillover, right? We can see that sort mm. of spillover event. The other is some of our passerines, and American crows are our passerines. So we can't say passerines aren't involved because some right. of our passerines are scavenging birds. But right. other than those two instances, we think of your typical backyard feeder type bird. They're simply not involved. Um, the evidence to support that: the 2014-2015 outbreak. I believe we had two passerines involved in, the, or songbirds involved in, the entire outbreak. One was a black-capped chickadee, and the other was a European starling. This <laughs> time, I don't think we've even hit ten um grand total you know a couple blue jays an american robin um uh, and a small handful of others so when you put enough virus out there in the environment sooner or later you know a you know a backyard songbird is going to pick it up but again it's going to be a localized you know uh, dead end host type situation so what i always again recommend and you look at the, at the state uh, natural resource agencies, and many of them have guidance. And certainly that guidance would include, you know, if, you're, if your domicile, where you live, is right next to a waterfowl production area, might make sense, you know, to cease feeding for a while. If you're right next door to, you know, if you notice a, a poultry production facility is currently being depopulated, yeah, it makes sense probably to <laughs> cease feeding for a, for a while. But in generally, the science does not support that rule. Now, but I w- what I will say is that hygiene is really, really important at backyard feeders. Maybe not for high path AI, but for a host of other pathogens. So if you're going to feed in backyard, I do it myself. It's great fun in the winter. You know, um, clean those feeders regularly. Pick up the seed off the ground, especially if you've got backyard poultry, because there you've got a, a potential mechanism for sharing pathogens, you know, between the backyard songbirds and your poultry. Um, if, you, if you've got watering devices out there, Clean them out, you know, uh, clean them, you know, maybe weekly, something like that with a 10% bleach, you know, into 90% water solution, rinse them a couple of times, air dry them, and then go about your business. So, um, what I said, while high path AI doesn't seem to be real big on songbirds, um, there's a lot of pathogens that are so good hygiene is always called for if you're going to, if you're going to participate in that great activity.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that you're spot on. That's uh, that's the advice we've been given for a couple of years. Because there have been, uh, you know, a very common songbird that we get in our backyard feeders are finches, and finches can be quite susceptible to a number of avian diseases. Uh, there, there's a pox that hits them. There's salmonella. There's all these different diseases, and the finch conjunctivitis. Is, yep. Yeah, you conjunctivitis bet. was there was a big spread of that uh, just last year, actually. So the answer has always been not to take your feeder down completely, although that's an option. Because it turns out that the wild birds coming to your feeder, even though it looks like they're getting an awful lot of food that way, uh, I think the maximum dietary intake that's been documented for a wild bird at feeders was chickadees. You know, as we know, those of us who feed chickadees, they once they start coming to your feeder, they just they'll camp out on it. it seems like they're getting all their food there but in fact they're only getting at most half of their dietary intake from your feeder and so uh, most of the other birds are getting 20% or less and they're easily able to find enough food if you take your feeder down we just don't get to enjoy them but uh, the birds will do fine but short of that you can as you say uh, a regular and disciplined program of weekly cleaning and and sanitation with a bleach solution it's pretty much all you need to do to protect your backyard birds
2: makes a ton of sense yep i do have a question feeding is How... feeding's a lot about us you know it's more yeah. about us and our enjoyment than it is about the birds um but i sure enjoy it i mean i've taken some fascinating photographs over the years of birds here in the winter and it's great activity
0: yeah, absolutely, and, and encouraged because it just gets people you know, interacting with wildlife and understanding a little more about it, and uh, you develop a personal relationship, and then conservation starts to become a natural habit after that.
2: Boy, you hit the I nail on the head that... with that one. You know, getting people involved <laughs> with nature. Um, we think about the future of wildlife, wildlife health It's going to depend on habitat. Um, It's going to, and habitat's going to depend on kind of that connection, you know, between people and wildlife. Yeah. And so getting back that connection where people appreciate nature and wildlife for what it is and how important it is to sustaining biodiversity and healthy ecosystems, you bet. Whatever it takes to get people out there enjoying nature, I'm a fan of.
0: Yeah, yeah. And from that standpoint, I, I was happy to hear you explain that there's extremely low risk of uh transmission of this particular avian influenza uh into the human population because that's what people are going to worry about and start developing what we don't want is people to become afraid of wild birds and wild songbirds are not a threat to humans they're not going to give us a disease so I did have a question. How did the uh, how does the disease get into backyard flocks? It, I re- remember songbirds coming in, of course, because the sparrows uh, very quickly discover that the food that you give to your chickens is extremely tasty and nutritious to them as well, and so we had an enormous flock of sparrows working uh, in our flock of chickens, but. I don't remember waterfowl ever coming into my yard, but that's maybe because I live on the top of a ridge and there's no surface water nearby.
2: I think, I think you nailed it right there. I'm high and dry where I am, and so I was not particularly concerned. I'm keeping an eye out where path AI has been detected in proximity to where we live. But it's a good mile to the nearest pond where there's migratory uh-huh. waterfowl. But I think there's a lot... Of backyard flocks that are low and in proximity, and I've read uh, read stories this year about you know folks with you know mixed flocks, and their ducks actually share oh, yeah. time and space down at a water hole that's a couple hundred yards away from the house where there's migratory mallards in there. Well, they pick up the virus, then they bring it back in with the rest of the mm-hmm. flock, and about a day or two later, everybody's dead. Mm. You yeah, know that's what it takes. So they're sampling somehow. These birds are sampling virus in their environment, whether it's in association with the water, or whether there's an intermediate mechanism. Somehow that virus is getting in, and I think likely water you know may be the you know a key factor there, or people bringing virus you know on their person. We know that the virus can persist in the environment. For a while. So let's say in the middle of a a high path AI outbreak, you know, I've got a Labrador and let's say this spring we went to, you know, a local area take him out swimming uh, where there's ducks out in the water. He could easily bring home virus on his coat and so if he comes home and we go head out to the chicken yard, neither he or I with my boots, end up you know um, slogging into the into the chicken yard or in the chicken uh, coop uh, we could easily bring a little bit of virus and that's the key it doesn't take much we think about these these million plus bird high security high biosecurity poultry facilities that's one of the great mysteries is how does virus get into these? They have, you know, um, airflow control systems and tremendous, you know, uh, parameters set up. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow virus finds its way in. And the key is it doesn't take much.
0: Mm. Because it is such a highly pathogenic strain, yeah. Well, just for listeners who want to follow up on this, we will put a bunch of information and and links on our website uh, so you can follow up. Uh, In particular, I'll have a link for that CDFW reporting form uh, if you have sick or dead birds in your poultry flock and also some uh, advice on how to keep your backyard feeders clean and disease-free. We'll have some information there, and that is at ecologyhour.wordpress.com. I think we have just a few more minutes, so if if there's uh, if there's a message you want to convey to listeners, uh, how they should be, what they should be looking for, and uh, how concerned should they be about this?
2: It's hard to gauge how concerned we should be. Um, We regularly now hear reports of pretty dramatic impacts in raptors, um, including our national symbol, bald eagles. Um, In certain locations along the East Coast, there have been reports of maybe up to a 40% decline in nest success this year. So that's a pretty substantial localized impact. But on the other hand, we take a look at eagle numbers. And over the course of the last decade, according to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service estimates, eagle numbers have quadrupled. So we did a great thing by banning DDT back in the 70s when eagles were literally on the brink of extinction. They've come back to uh, be, you know, the population that they are today. And so while something like high-path avian influenza can be an immediate threat, and have consequential impacts, it's likely that the population will be okay. And I think, as we mentioned earlier, if we're concerned about those impacts, probably the strongest thing we can do is look out for their future. We can't alter disease outcomes in a disease like this. Immediate outcomes we have really no control over. But we do have some control over the circumstances in which these birds are allowed to recover. California has been a, a tremendous leader you know, in this, in this state, in that effort. If you look at the scientific literature, one of the most persistent long-term threats to eagle populations is lead intoxication. Okay? Uh, mm-hmm. And much of this comes from lead-based projectiles, uh, bullets, and or fishing equipment, and so the state of California has been very forward in banning the use of lead projectiles for nearly all hunting activities, and so if you're not putting that out into the environment, you're going to have less associated mortality from lead intoxication. So said the literature suggests this is a really important tactic to take. And it's something the state of California has been a leader on. So looking to the future, um, we can't, there's no crystal ball that's going to tell us who, you know, how exactly bad this um, particular epizootic might be. We'll have to see what comes back in the fall. That's the, that's the million dollar question right now. What comes back in the fall? measuring impacts will be important documenting those impacts will be important and doing everything we can to assure that these species um you can recover to the best of their ability those are the things we can do if you're a backyard poultry operator check out that guidance that udsda and your state ag departments are going to give you
0: great well i think maybe we will see how it goes in the next few months and we might be calling you back next spring for a recap on how the birds
1: did over the winter.
2: Sounds great. This was super enjoyable, and I want to thank you guys again for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, nice to meet you, and thank you very much for the interview. I enjoyed it greatly. Yeah, thanks a lot.